Welcome to Woodland Church. Here is today's message. Church family, let's dive into the Word of God this morning. We have been in a series looking at Jesus' last teachings. We are getting ready and prepared, uh, I would say emotionally and mentally and spiritually ready for the death and resurrection of our Lord and King. And, and in this season, we are looking at, at some of Jesus' final teachings to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Last week, we were looking at John 16, verses 4 through through 16. We were looking at how Jesus talks about this helper, how Jesus has to go away. And it's good for Jesus to go away. He tells his disciples, this is good for you. So then the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, can come. And then Jesus describes three roles that the Holy Spirit has. He's going to come and convict this world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring this world to the knowledge of their own sin and their realization that they need a Savior. The Holy Spirit is also here to be leading us, church. He will guide us into all truth, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit is here because Jesus does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He does not leave us as orphans, but he sends his spirit to come and to lead his church. And he also says the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus, meaning the Holy Spirit will be pointing this world and this church and his people to Christ. He will be lifting up Christ because of what Christ has done for this world, that the world needs a Savior. The world needs forgiveness, and it's only found within Christ Jesus. Well, I want to continue Jesus' teaching to his disciples. And this week we are going to continue on to the next verses. And the title of this week's verse is that it's not over, is the title of today's message. And you will, you will see that in John chapter 16. So please, if you have your Bibles, turn to John 16, 16, and I'm going to ask you, church family, to to stand with me this morning as we read the Word of God. John 16, 16 through 24, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while, and you will not see me again, and again, a little while, you will see me? Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a young or when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Verse 22, so also... You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy 
from you. In that day you will ask, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever asks the asks of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let us pray this morning. Father, Lord, come and minister to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Come and enlighten your word to our hearts and to our minds. Father, I thank you for your words to your disciples. Lord, help us to, to, to see you more clearly this morning. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. Now, like what I've said for the last few weeks here, for the disciples, this was a very confusing time for them. They had been following Jesus for the last three years. They had witnessed miracle after miracle, healing after healing. And as they're going through this season, Jesus is starting to bring them. He's starting to remind them of the things that are about to be taking place to them. He's reminding them that he's leaving. And here in these verses, Jesus says this. He says in verse 16, 16, it says, A little while you'll see me no longer, and again in a little while you will see me. Now, when John penned this letter, and when the first Christians read this letter, these words made perfect sense. Jesus is obviously talking about his death and resurrection. In a little while you'll see me, in a little while longer you'll see me no more, than in a little while you will see me. It's a tongue-tying conversation within English. But for them, they were confused. Well, Jesus, where are you going? What's going on here? Going to a different town? You're leaving us for just a little while and then we're going to see you again? You're going around the corner for a little bit? They probably thought maybe Jesus is, because Jesus did this often, he would get into, in, into a boat and cross over to the, to the other side of the lake. Jesus spent a lot of time alone with the Father. They had probably all of these different thoughts going on. Jesus, what are you talking about? Where are you going? They were completely perplexed. And then Jesus knows this, and as you read John 16, 17 through 19, which we're going to read again, and it's a tongue-tying because we see these words come up over and over. In verse 17, some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me, and again a little while you'll see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean? By a little while we do not know what he is talking about. And then there's Jesus in verse 19. He knows them. He knows this is confusing. He knows this is difficult for them to be processing here. And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking your, yourselves, what I mean? A little while you'll not see me again, in a little while you will see me. Jesus absolutely knew that this was going to be difficult for them. Jesus knew that this was very difficult for them to comprehend. I mean, for three years, they, their hope and their trust has been in Christ, and they could not comprehend Him leaving. He's the King. He's the Lord of Lords. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. 
And then the Messiah looks at them and says, listen, I'm going to leave, but don't worry. And I love this, how Jesus reminds them. And Jesus forewarns them. Jesus knows them so well. He knows this is going to be absolutely heartbreaking. They're going to be weeping. They are going to be sorrowful. They are going to be completely confused the day Jesus dies. In a little while, you'll see me. And then a little while, no more. And then a little while, you are going to see me. And Jesus forewarns them here. He says, listen, you are going to weep. You are going to be in in tears. There is going to be sorrow in your hearts. You are going to be asking questions. But Jesus is reminding them, listen, I'm, I'm telling you, what is about to be taking place? And Jesus says this, and to top it all off, while the disciples are weeping and mourning and sorrowful, and guys, I can only imagine how the disciples felt watching Jesus die. I can only imagine it because not only was he the Messiah and the King, but they had left him. They abandoned him. And Jesus knows they're going to be going through all of these emotions and heartache and pain. And then to top it off, the world will be rejoicing, Jesus says. I can only imagine what they were about to be going through here. But Jesus knows the world will rejoice. I think about the day that Jesus dies. We're going to talk about that a lot on Good Friday, but I think about also the day after Jesus dies. How the city was. How they had made these plans to get rid of Jesus and how those plans came to be. And as the disciples were mourning and weeping and Jesus says, you're going to be, you're going to be absolutely sorrowful, but the world will be rejoicing. And Jesus gives them just this beautiful picture. He says, When a woman gives birth, it's painful, it's sorrow, it's anguish, it's not fun, it is hard. But then the baby comes, and all that pain, and all that sorrow. Now, I personally have never experienced that, don't know what that's like. Watched my wife do it a few times, difficult, but there is that amazing joy that comes. If you are married and you have got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and especially if you are a mother. All that, all the sorrow, all the pain, all that you're going through, the moment that that baby comes, it's, all, it's, it's almost like it's forgotten. Well, it has to be forgotten because women get pregnant again, so they, if they were constantly remembering it, I don't think they would continue to be going down that road. But Jesus gives them this picture He's telling his disciples, what is about to take place is going to be extremely hard for you. But it won't last. It's not going to last. Look at verse 22, 16, 22. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. At the time of Jesus, the world, the religious leaders, the Romans, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And you can argue, was this man's plan or was it God's plan? It was both plans. God knew everything that was about to be taking place. But the world 
hated Jesus. And we like to sometimes tend to think that as we read Scripture, like everyone was okay with him. Like, you know, as Jesus talks and does all these miracles and all of this healing, it's really easy to have a mindset, well, maybe, maybe people actually kind of like Jesus. Well, if they liked him, why did they kill him? Right? Like, so the evidence is in the fact that they killed him. The religious leaders, the Romans, they got rid of him. And not only that, nobody stood up for him. His disciples left. They killed him. They hated him. And the disciples at the time, as you guys know this, as we read Scripture, when they kill Jesus, they go back to life. They feel defeated. It's over. Here's Jesus. He, they killed him. He, they killed our king. The game's over. Look at, look at uh, John 21.3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm doing what? Typical man answer here. I'm going fishing. What did Peter do before Christ? He went fishing. They kill him. I'm going back. He says, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Terrible fishing trip. But what you see here is the disciples felt so defeated at the time of Jesus. When they killed him, the world rejoiced. The religious people were so happy to get rid of him. And the disciples are feeling completely and utterly defeated. We lost. The game's over. So they go fishing. But Jesus isn't going to lose. And he reminds his disciples, joy is coming. It's going to be hard. It's going to really, really stink. But he looks at them and he says, listen, there's going to be joy that's coming. And this joy that is going to be coming to you, no one will take it from you. All the pain, all the anguish they are about to experience watching their king get brutally murdered by the Romans, an innocent man hanging on that cross. Jesus says, listen, it's going to be super hard, but joy's coming. And as I think about us, church, because we weren't there, we're looking back on this story, right? We are we, have, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's speaking to them about his death and resurrection. And it's easy for us to look back on this story. But as I think about us, church, I think we are living in such a time, and I think all of us experience this, every Christian, but as we think about our own culture, we live in such a time where the culture in the world, especially our culture, especially Western culture, especially American culture, we live in such a time where our culture and our world does not want God. They do not want Christ. They have erased him from everything that they can possibly imagine. And if you are older, you have seen this take place. But even if you're younger, in the last 10 years, church family, think about our culture. Look at what has taken place in the last 10 years. How we have like the degrading of our culture has like, it's only been like accelerating. And it's really easy to be looking out there and thinking the standards are gone, the morals are nowhere to be found, and to top it off, our culture has no idea what meaning is. Men and women have no idea what 
what the purpose is of their life. And it's easy for us to look around and see how far morals have fallen around us. They've gotten rid of God within our society. You guys have all heard the quote, God is dead. came from a German philosopher, Nietzsche. And uh, Nietzsche was not a believer. Uh, he was a full-blown atheist. And, but, each, but Nietzsche noticed something, that after the Enlightenment period, I'm going to go into a little bit of history here, so stay awake with me just for a little bit here. As you study history of the Western civilization, Nietzsche points out this fact that society has gotten rid of God. Nietzsche noticed this way back then. He looked at it and he realized that after the Enlightenment, especially within European culture, which eventually flows into our culture, we're, you guys may not realize this, but we're usually 10 to 20 to 30 years behind Europe. So if you think Europe is bad as far as following Christ, don't think that American culture is much further behind them. But Nietzsche noticed that, that the idea of the universe that was governed by physical laws and the culture at the time realized that, hey, the universe isn't really governed by a divine being. It's governed by just science. And at the time, if you look at it, philosophy had shown that governments no longer needed to be organized around the idea of divine right to be legitimate, but rather by the consent or rationale of the governed, that large and consistent moral theories could be erased and done away with without any reference of God. Europe no longer needed God as the source for morality, values, or order. Philosophy and science were capable of doing this. And Nietzsche points this out. He says, listen, God is dead. And he recognized within society, almost going back almost 200 years ago now, that he recognized the society has gotten rid of God. That they don't need God for morals. They don't need God for divine revelation. They don't need him. He's gone. Science, philosophy, we have all the answers. Well, Nietzsche wasn't dumb. He knew this would cause issues. If you take away the one who sets the standard for morals, what's going to happen? In his book, The Twilight of the Idols, he says this, When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morals out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. Now, Nietzsche thought this would be great, and many people at the time got behind it and said, yeah, this is, this is fantastic. We don't need God. We can do all of this on our own. We can govern on our own. We can, our, our philosophy, everything can be done on our own. But Nietzsche believed that the removal of this system put most people at the risk of despair or meaningless. Meaning, people are going to reject all religious and moral principles 
in the belief that life is meaningless. Have you realized how right Nietzsche was? As the world rejected the moral standards of God, we can see this play out over the last 200 years, and it's only accelerated. And now we have mankind. Guys, you talk to people. Talk, talk to people outside of these church walls. The meaning of life is like there's no idea. They walk around meaningless. Young people are in despair. They don't know what the purpose is, what the meaning is. And you can trace it is that our society and our world has done everything they can to get rid of God. The morals, the standard, we don't need any of that. We don't have any morals. We don't have any standards. We do, morals are just self-evident is, is what they say. But as you look at our world, the morals are, they change like, like the wind. It's like one day this is okay, the next day, well, that's not okay. And it's like we live in such a time where our world has completely killed off God in their minds. And I bring this up, church, because the world rejoices at the fact that they get rid of God. But we mourn. We don't just mourn because we understand the eternal consequences, but life without God has produced a meaningless world for so many people. But we watch our world. We watch our world try to find meaning everywhere else. In their stuff, in their pleasures. People place a whole lot of hope on government. They put a whole lot of hope on science. They put a whole lot of hope in all of these things. And these things will always crumble. They always do. I mean, guys, we've seen this play out in the last two years, right? We're at the most sophisticated culture in the world. One of the most advanced scientific worlds and a virus wipes it all out. No idea how to respond. No idea what to do. They tried everything. It all failed. And it's like, it, it proves to us that if you're trying to find meaning in the things of this world is that they're going to let you down. If you're chasing after money, money comes and goes. It's just like the wind. It's like, it's here and then it's gone. Markets crash. Housing markets crash. Everything, it's just like, but as we look at this, we're living in such the midst of confusion and chaos, but yet this idea that we don't need God, and they have, it's just like we've just rejected them, we don't, we've just gotten rid of them. And I bring this up, church, because it should break our hearts. We should be mourning for this world around us. Not because God loses. It's not over. The king doesn't lose. I can, I can promise you that. When Jesus spoke to the disciples back then, when they felt like they lost, when they felt like the world won, Jesus is like, no, it's not over. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You're not going to see me, but you will see me. And when you see me, there's going to be joy that this world cannot take from you. And we are in a similar situation, church, because we're living in a time where we're waiting for the king to come back. Just like that, that two-day period where the disciples were waiting and wondering what just happened. They killed him, and they, they were just like, it's over. We're going to go fishing. We're just moving on with our lives. Church, we're in a similar season. We're waiting for the king. Jesus promised them, I'm going to come back. And then Jesus makes the promise to us as well. It's not over. 
I'm coming back. John 16, 22. I want to read this. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. As you read the rest of Scripture, you see how this plays out. Jesus' words here play out to be absolutely true. The disciples mourn, but then Jesus shows up, and there is much rejoicing. And when Jesus says these words, and anytime you have your Bibles, I read out of ESV, but if you, when you see words doubled, you know, truly, truly, here, I recommend circling that because whenever you see those words, pay attention. And Jesus is emphasizing, listen, you're going to ask the Father. And Jesus kind of shifts gears and reminds them of what is about to be taking place. When you see me again, you haven't asked anything in my name, but I'm telling you, there's going to be a different relationship that's about to be taking place here between man and the Father. That Jesus unites man to the Father through his death and resurrection. And Jesus says, listen, when that day comes, you will be asking of the Father. You will be able to have this amazing relationship, this closeness to the Father that mankind had only experienced back in Genesis. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm, you are going to come to the Father and there is going to be this confidence between you and the Father. And you're going to be asking him things in my name. And I'm telling you, you will receive them. You will be getting them. And I'm not talking about Ferraris and Corvettes and items of this world. But Jesus is re reminding them the relationship between you and the Father is about to change. I think about Hebrews chapter 4. You guys probably know these verses. 4, 14 through 16. Hebrews writer says this, and I think it's a great parallel to what Jesus says to his disciples and how this actually plays out. He says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then, look at these words, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hold fast. Because we have a high priest that has passed through the heavens. We have Jesus who came and conquered death. And the Hebrews writer is reminding the church you have access to the Father. You can draw near to God. Not based on us, but based on what Jesus has done for us. And church, this promise that Jesus makes to the disciples is the same promise for us as well. Jesus says in that day, listen, you're going to see me. Your joy is going to be overwhelming. No one's going to be able to take that from you. But then you're going to have access to the Father. 
like you've never had before. And it's not based on you. It's not based on, on how good you are or how morally right you think that you are. It's purely based on who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. And the Hebrews writer picks up on that here. And I'm here to be, to be bringing this encouragement to us, church. As believers in Christ, as we see the things of this world falling apart before our very eyes, there's despair, it's heartache, it can be painful, but we have access to the Father through Jesus. And there's this promise that you can come to Him. But guys, there's also this promise that it's not over. This world doesn't win. And I want you guys to really know that. They didn't win back then. They, they didn't beat Jesus. It was part of God's plan. They don't beat Him today either. Look at Revelations. Who doesn't love the book of Revelations? Revelations 21 says this. This is John, same writer, later time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In verse 4, look at this. Look at the parallels here that Jesus speaks to his disciples in John 16. There's, going to be, there's all this weeping, there's going to be all this pain, but then look at the promise that's to come. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I want to remind us, church, that these words that Jesus speaks to His disciples 2,000 years ago about His death and resurrection we are in a similar place where we are waiting for the king's return. Jesus promised them that he was coming back. And Jesus promises his church that it's not over. It's not over. This world, don't, don't let this world be totally breaking your spirit here. He's not dead. He's alive. And he's coming back for his church. There's going to be no more tears. Every tear will be wiped away. There's going to be so much joy and praise because we will see our King and we will be with Him for eternity. And I wanted to bring this encouragement to us this morning, family. Because I know it's discouraging out there. I know we can look around and be like, well, God's nowhere to be found. Nobody seeks Him. Nobody goes after Him. But that should be bringing us to tears and mourning for this world and getting on our knees and praying for for our friends and for our family who do not know Christ because Christ is the only one who can save them. But we can also rejoice, church family, because it's not over. The King will return again to save His people. He will rescue us from this world. I want to stand and pray with you this morning and I'm going to invite the worship team up. Joanne has a wonderful song picked out that I think fits perfect with our ending. But I want to pray. I want to pray for encouragement for you guys and for me this morning. 
that we will hold fast, that we will cling to our Savior. Father, we come, Lord. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your promises. But Father, You are coming again for us. You have never left Your people. Father, I thank You that we can come to You, that we can seek You, that we can boldly come before Your your throne because of Your grace and mercy that You've shown us, Lord. But Father, bring us encouragement today. Father, as we see this world just crumble around us, Father, bring us to our knees to be praying, Lord. Help us to be a voice. Help us to, to bring Your gospel to this world. But Father, remind us today that it's not over. That You are a King that's coming for His people again. Father, I praise You this morning. God, bring us encouragement. I ask this now in Jesus' name.